Warning, this episode contains graphic content, including descriptions of incidents of bludgeoning, torture, gun violence, and some sexual content, and may not be suitable for some audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. be wondering what the title of today's episode actually means. You may have heard the saying before today, après moi, le déluge. It's a French term, the little translation, after me, the storm. Or a bit more specifically, after me comes the storm. The saying has been attributed to Madame de Pompadour, the lover of King Louis XV of France. It came after the Battle of Rosbach in 1757, which was devastating for the French. It has two possible meanings. After me, the deluge will come, avowing that if the revolution were to end King Louis' reign, the nation would be plunged into chaos. Or it could mean, after me, let the deluge come, implying that King Louis really doesn't care what is to happen to France after he's gone. A person who might be one to use this statement in reference to himself or herself could possibly think quite loftily of themselves, as nowadays, if anyone were to say, après moi, les déluges, they might be the sort of person who lacks any kind of trepidations about behaving irresponsibly, one who is unconcerned with the way they conduct themselves blasé and apathetic about repercussions when it comes to their transgressions. In other words, if someone were to make this proclamation, après moi, le déluge, what they're likely saying is, I don't care what happens next, I'll be gone. Remember this idiom as I take you through the ins and outs of today's tale. There is a reason why I'm giving you this extemporaneous French lesson you might just get a glimpse into the mind of a sociopath. I'm going to begin this tale by telling you the story of five men, all but two completely unknown to one another, residing thousands of miles apart, but eternally connected to each other by one individual. I hope you will bear with me as I delve into the lives and backgrounds of these men, as every single one of them deserves as much as possible to be known to us equally as I recount the events of this story. I will introduce you to each of these men, one by one, and as I go, I'm going to ask that you listen to each one before you hit the internet to look to see who these people actually were. By the time I'm finished presenting their stories to you, I'm pretty sure many of you are going to know who we are going to talk about today. Have patience. It's important to me that you get to know each one of these men individually, and I deeply appreciate your attention to this. Now, we begin episode four of California Dreaming, the tale of Après Moi, Le Deluge. Jeffrey Trail was born March 7, 1968, in DeKalb, Illinois, and he was the youngest of five children of Stanley and Ann Trail. 
His father was a retired mathematics professor who taught at Northern Illinois University, and his mother was a retired elementary school teacher. Jeffrey attended DeKalb High School, where he was a track star. He had a part-time job at the local airport and regularly attended Westminster Presbyterian Church, as his faith was very important to him. He graduated from high school in 1987, and after high school, Jeff went into the Navy and graduated from the Naval Academy in Annapolis in 1991. Being in the Navy was so important to Jeff. He was very proud. He was stationed in San Diego, California, and went to serve in the Gulf War, ranked as lieutenant. He left the Navy after five years of dedicated service. After the Navy, he decided to look into a career in law enforcement, so he began the process of beginning training with the CHP, or the California Highway Patrol, often referred to as CHIPS. For some reason, though, that could not quite be discerned online, it seemed that Jeff found he was disinterested in working or living in California for very much longer. So, in the fall of 1996, it was time for Jeff to move on to the next phase in his life. He accepted a job in Bloomington, Minnesota as district manager for Pharrell Gas, a propane delivery company. Despite the fact he hadn't any experience working in the propane industry, his amiable personality, work ethic, and easygoing, caring disposition would carry him through. David Madsen was born October 16, 1963, to parents Howard and Carol Madsen, and he was one of four children raised in Barron, Wisconsin. His father was the owner of a local hardware store. In high school, David was an all-around good kid. He was on the honor roll. He was a member of the student council. He was the winner of the Wisconsin State Quiz Bowl in 1981 and 1982, and was the recipient of a total of nine medals in statewide debate competitions. He played varsity baseball and varsity golf. And if that weren't enough, he was an astute trombone player, high kicking as Professor Harold Hill in his school production of The Music Man. David earned his master's degree in architecture from the University of Minnesota Duluth at their main campus in Minneapolis. He won the President's Award for designing a traveling exhibit educating people about the AIDS virus. In 1994, he was invited to be a guest lecturer at Harvard University on the subject of AIDS and the development of assisted living facilities for those afflicted with the disease. In the early spring of 1996, David began working at the John Ryan Company, an architecture and design firm in Minneapolis that specializes in banks and financial institutions. He would be described as having incredible design skills. He was specifically in charge of designing banks that would be located inside grocery stores. He worked long hours, and he loved what he did. He loved life. Friends would describe him as a tremendously charming, always energetic, full of enthusiasm, and a joy to know. He was the conciliator, 
the peacemaker amongst his friends and co-workers. He was always attempting to be the one to patch things up when conflict arose. He worked so hard and enjoyed a fun-loving life outside of work. He lived in the warehouse district of Minneapolis. He had a Dalmatian named Prince and enjoyed long walks with his dog through his artsy urban neighborhood. He drove a red Jeep. He enjoyed fashion and dancing and upscale dining with his friends. He was so very outgoing, just an immensely good guy to know and tremendously easy to love. Lee Miglin was born July 12, 1924. As he is so well known for his accomplishments in his professional life, information about his early life and background is scant. He was the son of a Lithuanian immigrant coal miner, coming from a hardworking family and quite the humble beginnings. Lee rose to be a giant in the real estate world. He was a high-powered, hard-charging developer in Chicago, Illinois. He is the man who would completely change the Chicago skyline and is credited with inventing the concept of the business park, developments that combine office space and warehouse space. He made his wealth during the real estate boom of the 80s along with his partner, J. Paul Bittler. Together, they built several Chicago skyscrapers creating millions of square feet of office space. However, they are famously known for a project that never came to fruition, the Sky Needle, a sleek 125-story tower that was going to become the world's tallest building at the time. With Bettler creating a huge buzz over the construction of the Sky Needle, Lee worked diligently, albeit quietly in the background, on getting together the finances but unfortunately, the real estate boom went bust come 1990, and the building was never to be. You see, Lee's acquaintances would say that he wasn't exactly your stereotypical real estate developer. The loud, boisterous, overhyped type. These were not his characteristics. He was described as a very gentle, sweet, modest, and humble person who was never really one to boast of his successes. In the world of real estate moguls, he would be the exact opposite of a certain president who shall remain nameless. Lee was a gentleman in every sense of the word. As prominent a figure as Lee was in Chicago's business circles, so was his wife Marilyn. A model before marrying Lee she was a successful businesswoman in her own right, developing her own line of cosmetics and perfume, as well as owning a popular Chicago salon. The queen of makeovers, as she became known, also sold her products on the home shopping networks, basically making her a household name in the Chicago area. Together, Lee and Marilyn were staples in the Chicago social and charitable circles raising money for the University of Chicago Hospitals, the Museum of Science and Industry, and many other causes that were near and dear to the couple. They had two grown children and lived together quietly and happily in a posh, three-story brownstone 
on the lakefront neighborhood known as the Gold Coast. William Reese was born May 4, 1952, and grew up in Vinland in the heart of rural South New Jersey, and for years lived in nearby Bridgeton. He was an electrician by trade, but he grew weary of all the driving he had to do to get from job to job, day in and day out. He ended up working at Finns Point National Cemetery in Pennsville, New Jersey. William and his wife had a 12-year-old son, Troy. His wife was a librarian at an elementary school. The couple lived a sort of whimsical existence. They did puppet shows together. They made crafts together. He'd build, she'd paint. They sold their creations at craft fairs. They traveled together and participated in Civil War reenactments. They were creative, quirky, imaginative, and most definitely one of a kind. William is described as having an incredible respect for life, as well as for those who've passed on, which was most apparent in the way he invested himself into his work as the caretaker at Finns Point Cemetery. The historic preservationist to the adjacent Fort Mott State Park has stated that when William was at the cemetery, everything just seemed to sparkle. That isn't quite the vision we have of a more than 150-year-old cemetery. Finns Point is surrounded by marshlands and filled with somber gravestone markers. If visitors made their way there, seeking some glimpse into their past, William was there waiting for them. For more than 20 years, William worked there quietly and alone. He was the cemetery's caretaker, but the job meant much more to him than just trimming grass and keeping the place in good repair. When strangers came to him with family stories or old death certificates, he would be able to help them find their family member's name on the Union or the Confederate monuments. If they were to come holding an old urn with the ashes of a veteran, he would be the one to help them dig the small, discreet grave. He had always been fascinated with history. One of William's ancestors fought on the Union side of the Civil War and was buried at that very cemetery, along with several hundred other Northerners, as well as more than 2,300 Confederate POWs who died while imprisoned on an island fort in the Delaware River. William was one of the founders of the 14th Brooklyn Society, a group of Civil War reenactors. He loved Finn's Point. Even on his days off, he would drive there in the morning to raise the flag and then drive back in the evening to lower it. Even after he was diagnosed with MS, he was determined to keep up his duties at the cemetery. That place was and is William Reese. Gianni Versace was born December 2nd, 1946 in Reggio, Calabria, Italy. He was one of four children. However, one older sister died of an illness at the age of 12. Gianni's mother was a dressmaker and at a young age, he began an apprenticeship at his mother's dress shop where she employed about 12 seamstresses. 
Gianni studied architecture until the age of 26 when, at that time, he moved to Milan to pursue a career in fashion design. In 1973, he became the designer of Biblos, a successful Jenny's youth line, and in 1977, he designed another, more experimental line for Jenny's Complice. After a few years, encouraged by his successes, Gianni presented his first signature collection for women at the Palazzo della Permanente Art Museum of Milan. His first fashion show followed in September of the same year. After presenting his menswear collection, he joined Georges Saud. The first boutique was opened in Milan's Via della Spiga in 1978. Gianni would eventually go on to build his own fashion empire, Versace, an international fashion house, which produces accessories, fragrances, makeup, and home furnishings, as well as clothes. Gianni also designed costumes for the theater and films. As a friend of Eric Clapton, Diana, Princess of Wales, Naomi Campbell, Duran Duran, Madonna, Elton John, Cher, Sting, and many other celebrities, he was one of the first designers to connect the fashion world to the music world, and in doing so, he completely transformed the world of fashion, making celebrities and fashion the epicenter of pop culture. His designs were bright. They were colorful. He took risks. His designs were ambitious, and the world took notice. He rewrote the way the world looked at the fashion industry, and to this day, Versace's name has become the last word in glamour. When it comes to these five men, Jeffrey, David, Lee, William, and Gianni, what is the tie that binds? The story may slowly be creeping out of your memory banks as it's been 20 years. 20 years since these five souls were to share the unfortunate happenstance of crossing paths with a killer. A man hell-bent on exacting revenge on people he deeply resented for their individual achievements, successful careers, flourishing personal and professional lives, and even just because they happened to be a victim of circumstance, being at the absolute wrong place at the absolute wrong time. A killer who spent the better part of his adult life living on a mound of falsehoods, living off of anybody he could use and take advantage of. A killer who always wanted to be somebody, always wanted to be famous, always wanted to be wealthy and have the finest things in life, but refused to earn any of it. His name is Andrew Cunanan. And to understand where Cunanan went, it's important to understand where he came from. Cunanan was born August 31st, 1969 in San Diego, California to parents Modesto and Marianne. He was the youngest of four children. 
His father came to the United States from the Philippines and served in the U.S. Navy. And his mother, an Italian-American, worked as a phone operator in San Diego. They lived in a working-class neighborhood, National City, one of the poorest cities in America, but they were determined to make their way to a better life. Cunanan was very close with his father, a man who was extremely prestige-conscious and deeply interested in the finer things in life. It was he who would cultivate these traits in his son. They lived this modest existence, but within Modesto, there was a strong drive to want and achieve more. After he retired from the Navy, he worked as a stockbroker, and his wife, devoutly religious, stayed home and raised the children. Cunanan's mother also had a strong influence over him as a child. By the age of seven, he had read the entire Bible. He was an altar boy and had the goal of someday becoming a priest. They were in church nearly every single day. Home life was quiet and prayerful, but at the same time, to childhood friends of Cunanan, it was a home that was stifling and suffocating. When Cunanan turned nine, his family was able to move to a better neighborhood in the suburbs of San Diego, a place called Bonita. Cunanan's world was transformed as the contrast between living in National City and living in Bonita was stark. Cunanan quickly began to change, completely immersing himself in these new, more affluent surroundings. If all the kids were drinking water, Cunanan was drinking Perrier. If the kids all had pennies in their loafers, he had dimes in his. In everything he did, he had to one-up everyone around him, and everyone around him needed to know about it. When Cunanan was a teen, his parents traded up again and moved to another, more esteemed suburb of San Diego, Rancho Bernardo. It was at this time Cunanan began to build his own personal house of cards, he began embellishing about what his parents really did for a living, like telling friends his dad was a sniper for the Filipino mafia. I don't think his friends really believed him, but tried to be polite about it. I don't think Cunanan cared either way. His exaggerations were mainly for his own enjoyment and ego. Cunanan's mother and father were also able to send him to one of the most prestigious private schools in the San Diego area, the Bishop School in La Jolla, at a cost of about $9,000 a year, and that was in 1983. Today's tuition starts at $12,300 for kindergarten through fifth and increases to $17,520 for high school. Cunanan would begin to rub elbows with San Diego's most elite, and this was exactly where he felt he belonged. As friends would recount, Cunanan was consumed with social status and being somebody, being somebody famous. He craved money. He desired all the expensive things life had to offer, and at the same time, he always pretended to have more than he actually did. His friends would say that they knew all along that Cunanan was building a world that he wanted to live in, but none of it was real. It was all a fantasy dreamt up by Cunanan. His friends also knew 
And as he made no secret of the fact that he was attracted to men, some would report that as a teen, he began having liaisons with older, wealthy men. Most of his friends would describe his personality as colorful and exuberant. He was often so flamboyant and boisterous. However, some felt it was just another put-on. Even his homosexuality, they felt like, wasn't legitimate either. He was such a rampant liar and teller of tall tales that even his being attracted to men was an act, another fabrication that was well-suited for getting Kunyanin what he ultimately wanted, attention and money. He graduated from the Bishop School in 1987, and for the class superlatives, no surprises here, he was voted most likely to be remembered. One of the most glaring things that stood out about Kunanan in high school, something that anyone who would reflect upon after finding out the path he took subsequent to high school, is Kunanan's yearbook entry on his page. While his classmates filled their pages with their accomplishments, Kunanan's entry was nearly empty, with the exception of one unnerving quote. Après moi, les déluges. The quote we learned about as we began this story. It would be nearly a decade before his classmates at the Bishop School and the rest of the world would come to see how utterly devastating that storm would be. After high school, Cunanan attended the University of California at San Diego, majoring in history. However, a little over a year later, Cunanan's world as he knew it, his carefully cultivated life would come crumbling down. His father was indicted on charges of embezzlement from the company he worked for as a stockbroker. He absconded from the United States to the Philippines, becoming a fugitive. His mother was forced to obtain public assistance benefits, and soon after, Cunanan dropped out of college. He went to the Philippines to visit his dad, but hastily returned to the United States, completely appalled by his father's squalid living conditions. And with that, a switch flipped in Cunanan. He turned his back on the world in which he had grown up, the world that in a window of a year's time slipped through his fingers, and he would never look back. He would surreptitiously create a new life for himself, his new house of cards. And this new life would be centered around and furnished by older, wealthy, often closeted gay men. These men would take him to expensive dinner parties. Kunanan developed a routine while at these dinner parties. Today, you might describe it as trolling. He would seek out millionaires who were not openly gay. He would find out some small detail about him or some interest that he had, and Kunanan would go home and learn everything he could about the topic and use that as a way to get close to people. This was his way of continuing his climb up the social ladder, but not just by networking and social connections. He'd basically become a gigolo. Kunanan would have one major benefactor at a time, 
I really dislike the term sugar daddy so much, so we'll go with benefactor. He would have one major benefactor at a time, and he was able to make these relationships last a long time by keeping their interests and keeping them happy. That was only part of Cunanan's game. He made friends close to his own age in San Diego's gay community of Hillcrest. This is where he would be the outrageous, fun-loving Cunanan that could cut loose, dance on tables, and buy rounds of drinks for the whole place with his benefactor's allowance. He thoroughly enjoyed being able to spend money on all of his friends, as he could be generous with not only his money, but also his affections. His friends would say he would never greet anyone without an infectious smile, a huge hug, and a kiss on the cheek. Cunanan could not let people get too close to him, however. He had to keep a certain distance so he could keep up the facade he had created for himself. He had told people he was a designer or a model or an aspiring actor. He even reinvented his family of origin, telling people that his mother was often not around for him because she was too busy with her socialite duties or too involved in running fashion shows around the world and that she shunned him out of her life. He'd also tell people that he was from a wealthy, prominent Jewish family and that his father owned a home on the Riviera. He'd also spoke of having an ex-wife and a young daughter, even going so far as to producing a picture of this fictitious family standing in a beautiful house. Some knew him as Andrew Cummings, others as Andrew De Silva. His tales were boundless. So abundant were the falsehoods about his identity, it was almost as though Cunanan was an enigma. Nobody ever really knew who this man really was. A few people were able to get close to Cunanan. One was Jeffrey Trail. The two had a deep admiration for one another. They cared deeply for each other and developed a very strong and intense bond. However, Jeff's family would dismiss the idea that the two were ever romantically involved. They would suggest that Cunanan was borderline obsessed with Jeff. Whatever the truth is, whether they were romantically involved or not, I suppose at this point is irrelevant. Jeff's family were witness to some of the odd things that Cunanan would do while he was around Jeff. It was as if Cunanan idolized him. He'd copy his haircut. If Jeff grew a goatee, so did Cunanan. He'd wear the same fashions and buy the same accessories. Jeff initially found Cunanan to be fun, witty, and entertaining to be around, but eventually grew to become less fond of him. Jeff was set to move on in life. He was going to relocate to Minneapolis for the opportunity with the propane company, and he was embarking on a new relationship and he made it clear that he did not want Cunana to come. He was afraid that Cunana would stir up trouble between himself and his partner. So Jeff left California and Cunana behind. According to some of his friends, he was deeply hurt by this break in this relationship with Jeff, whatever the nature of it was, so much so that Cunana became physically ill over it. He became despondent. 
It was another crumbling facet of Cunanan's world that would inch him closer to the edge. Another person Cunanan became close to was David Madsen, an architect coincidentally from Minnesota. The two met while David was visiting friends in San Francisco, and they soon developed a relationship. Cunanan would tell friends that Madsen was the love of his life. David, too, though, would eventually distance himself from Cunanan because of his supposed shady dealings he suspected him of. What it was, he could not have been sure. One thing was for certain, though. Cunanan could not support himself. He had no job. He had no income. All he had was the house of cards built on a foundation of untruths. While he was involved with David, Cunanan had taken up with wealthy businessman Norman Blatchford, a man in his late 60s who provided Cunanan with almost a $1 million home to live in and a $2,500 a month allowance. However, by the fall of 1996, Cunanan's relationships began to disintegrate. Not just one of them, all of them. One by one. David lost interest in Cunanan, and it can be speculated that part of the reason was out of fear. He couldn't figure out where Cunanan was getting all of his money. David thought it was very odd that Cunanan wouldn't give him a phone number to call or an address to visit. David began to have that gut feeling that something weird, possibly underhanded, was going on with him. Thus, he began to back off the relationship he had. This would be the first broken relationship to push Cunanan closer towards going off the deep end. At around the same time, Jeff was going to move to Minnesota with his new job opportunity, and it coincidentally was near where David lived. Cunanan was the one who suggested that Jeff get in touch with David when he gets there, so he can at least know one person when he arrived. However, Cunanan was secretly devastated that Jeff was leaving California. This would be the second broken relationship to inch Cunanan closer to going over the edge. On top of these two relationships ending, a third was nearing its end as well. Cunanan's relationship with this so-called benefactor, Norman Blatchford, was also coming to an end. He simply lost interest in Cunanan. This would be the third broken relationship that pretty much propelled Cunanan to the brink. Suddenly, money was hard to come by. He began resorting to selling drugs and reportedly using them as well. His nightlife was fueled by partying, drugs, and sex, and it all began to consume him. No longer able to keep up his usual workout regimen, he began to put on weight. He found that he was no longer able to attract the kinds of wealthy men that he once had. He also started to suspect that he might have contracted the HIV virus. He also told some friends that he thought he had. Later it would be found that he did not have HIV. It may have been another one of those things to get him some attention and sympathy. Over the next few months, as Cunanan's party-style life was becoming more and more difficult to maintain, he was also becoming increasingly jealous of Jeff and David's personal successes, which was in stark contrast to his own personal and financial circumstances. 
To make matters worse, he also suspected the two of having started a relationship with one another behind his back, an accusation they would vehemently deny. But Cunanan was growing tired. He began to grow despondent. He was not simply going to sit idly by. He was going to do something about this. A seed planted in Cunanan's mind. A plan that he was going to let percolate for a few months, driven by his jealousy and suspicions. In April of 1997, Cunanan began to tell friends that he was moving to San Francisco, but he said first he had some business to take care of in Minneapolis. His friends in San Diego didn't think he'd stay away too long, but he told them, trust me, you don't know me, I won't be back. On April 26, Cunanan flew to Minneapolis on a maxed out credit card he begged to have the limit raised on so he could buy a one-way ticket to fly first class, naturally. The business he was supposedly going to take care of really wasn't business at all. He was determined to get to the truth behind the nature of Jeff and David's relationship. Cunanan's rage was reaching a fever pitch. David, as it turns out, would be the one to welcome Cunanan to Minneapolis. Despite warnings from mutual friends, David did not take any of their concerns seriously. He was more than happy to host an old friend. And on his first night in, David took Cunanan out to dinner with some friends. They were immediately put off by Cunanan's bragging about money and material things. He most definitely did not make for any good first impressions. For the most part, David was doing the best he could while hosting his visiting friend. But all of this was about to change. David and Jeff arranged to have a get-together along with Cunanan on April 27th to address his suspicions directly. Their intentions were to put his mind at ease about the whole thing, to make it clear that there was nothing going on so Cunanan could try and let it go. This plan would prove catastrophic. A heated argument ensued between Jeff and Cunanan, which quickly escalated into violence. Just before 10 p.m., neighbors heard someone in the apartment scream, get the fuck out, followed by loud thuds. Cunanan had made his way into the kitchen, retrieved a hammer from a junk drawer, and right in front of a terrified David, proceeded to bludgeon Jeff about the head and upper body until Jeff's life came to a standstill. He was 29 years old. Later, it would be determined that the watch Jeff was wearing on his wrist came to a stop at 9.55 p.m., frozen in time at the moment he tried to defend himself against Cunanan's hammer that came crashing down upon him. Why David would go on to agree to help Cunanan with his subsequent cover-up of his activities is anybody's guess. But... I would surmise it was likely out of fear and confusion. They rolled Jeff's lifeless body into David's Persian rug and devised a plan to leave the area and hide out from authorities. However, the moment that David failed to show up for work, his colleagues were immediately alarmed and reported David as missing. An investigation of his apartment revealed the horror 
of what had transpired there. A scene marked with Jeff's blood spatter and Jeff lying dead inside, rolled up in that carpet. David and Cunanan fled Minneapolis in David's red Jeep. It is difficult to determine how complicit David was in the killing of Jeff. It did not appear that he made any attempt to flee from Cunanan, as the two men were seen by neighbors walking David's dog the day after Jeff was murdered. Police discovered overwhelming evidence of Cunanan's involvement in the killing, but a few days had passed and the two were gone, along with David's car. They could have been anywhere by then. Four days after the discovery of Jeff's body, some fishermen discovered David's body floating in a lake 45 miles north of Minneapolis. He had been shot three times in the back of the head using a 40 caliber pistol that Cunanan had stolen from Jeff. David was 33 years old. Cunanan was now on the run, headed east in David's stolen red Jeep. Needed to ditch the car and find some money quickly, he made his way to Chicago and into the home of his next victim, real estate mogul Lee Miglin, who just happened to have the misfortune I spoke of earlier. The wrong place, the wrong time. On May 3rd, Cunanan gained access into Lee's home where he tied him up and subjected him to horrifying acts of torture, which included wrapping his head completely with duct tape, punching, kicking, and stabbing Lee with garden shears before finally sawing open Lee's throat with a small hacksaw. Following this brutal attack, Cunanan stole personal items from the house, including some clothes and gold coins, and made off again in an easterly direction in Lee's green Lexus. This third death was quickly linked to Cunanan as they found David's red Jeep parked nearby the Miglin home. Cunanan, whether out of arrogance or not caring, really made no effort to conceal his involvement in these murders. This made identifying him relatively simple. However, tracking him down was a race against the clock. He could be anywhere in the United States at this point. He was killing without hesitation, and it looked as though he was now doing it indiscriminately. The FBI was alerted, and they quickly launched a nationwide manhunt. They were initially able to track Cunanan's movements across state lines through the use of Lee's in-car cell phone in the Lexus. However, catching wind of this, Cunanan ripped the phone out of the car and ditched it somewhere in Pennsylvania. His trail went cold again. Cunanan knew that he needed to abandon the car soon. On May 9th, he made his way to Pennsville Township, New Jersey. This is where he would find his fourth victim, another man at the wrong place, at the wrong time, William Reese, the caretaker at Finns Point National Cemetery. He was shot and killed for only the keys to his truck. He was 45 years old. Cunanan ditched Lee's green Lexus at the cemetery and basically running out of places to head east he turned south. 
Next stop, Miami, Florida. Kunana drove down to Miami in Reese's stolen truck, where he arrived the next day on May 10th. He took a long-term room rental in a beachfront hotel that had seen better days. His intentions were to settle in Miami and begin a new life for himself in South Beach. He started off being careful as to not be too conspicuous and attempted to be as low-key as possible while frequenting the gay night spots Miami had to offer. After all, the police were in the midst of a nationwide search for Kunanan. However, as days and weeks passed and people seemed none the wiser, he used his well-polished chameleon skills to blend in with the locals. His behavior began to grow bolder. Why was Kunanan able to spend several weeks in Miami virtually undetected? He made three cameos on John Walsh's America's Most Wanted, yet the manhunt was at a virtual standstill. Despite the fact that Kunana was careless about trying to cover up his involvement in these four killings, that was offset by the mishandling of this case by law enforcement, who wasted several opportunities to apprehend Kunanan. In one incident, he was recognized in a Miami sandwich shop, but he was able to leave when he was recognized by one of the employees, but when he slipped away to call 911, the other employee handed Kunan in his sandwich and he casually strolled out back into the crowds before police were able to arrive. On another occasion, Kunanan pawned the gold coins he stole from Lee, which requires him to provide identification for security purposes, which he did. This information is automatically sent to local police in accordance with regulations designed to identify wanted felons, but somebody dropped the ball. The information was never followed up on, and the connection, it just was never made. Andrew Kunanen was officially added to the FBI's 10 most wanted list on June 12, 1997. As of today, there have been 514 people listed on the FBI's most wanted list. Kunanen's entry was number 449. He joined the ranks of some of the most notorious wanted criminals, mob boss James Whitey Bulger, serial killer Ted Bundy, James Earl Ray, the man who assassinated Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and of course, terrorist and 9-11 attacks mastermind Osama bin Laden. Kunanan would remain on this list for one month. A little more than two months would pass before Kunanan would commit his fifth and final act of murder. Kunanan ostensibly met, and I use the term met loosely, Gianni Versace at Colossus, a now-defunct gay nightclub in San Francisco. The encounter apparently occurred in the fall of 1990 on the dance floor of the club. The proprietor at the time distinctly remembers seeing Gianni and Cunanan at the club around the same time, and further remembers Cunanan bragging about having just met the fashion designer. 
There have also been reports that the two met in passing again in 1991 at the San Francisco Opera. Whether or not Cunanan and Versace ever really crossed paths or ever had any type of interaction or dialogue will likely never be truly confirmed. But one thing is for certain, the two would meet one last time in a violent encounter that Gianni Versace never saw coming. On July 15, 1997, 20 years to the day as I am recording this, the innovative, risk-taking, ground-breaking, fashion-designing icon Gianni Versace was shot dead on the front steps of his Miami Beach mansion. He was the fifth and final victim of Cunanan, who at this point, having held his spot on the FBI's 10 most wanted for one month and three days. Situated on busy Ocean Drive, a 15-block strip of Art Deco hotels and sidewalk cafes facing the oceanfront, Gianni had a daily morning routine where he would walk about four blocks to the news cafe to buy magazines and a coffee. As he was coming back on that particular summer morning of the 15th, he walked past the entrance of his palazzo as though he sensed someone was following him. He kind of circled back around and then approached the front gates to his place to open them. According to a witness, he was approached by a man, approximately 25 years old, wearing a gray t-shirt, black shorts, and a white hat. The man pulled out a gun and shot Gianni twice at point-blank range in the back of the head. Gianni fell to the steps of his home where he lay bleeding to death. He was 50 years old. Police were nearby and quickly attempted to render aid. Several Samaritans, including Gianni's partner, Antonio D'Amico, tried to follow the suspected shooter, but were scared off by the man waving his gun at them and soon lost him in the bustling maze of foot traffic of Ocean Drive. In the moment that Gianni was shot by the stranger, there was no reason to suspect that his murder had anything to do with the trouble which had been terrorizing communities from Minneapolis, Chicago, and New Jersey throughout the spring due to the exploits of Andrew Cunanan. Despite having a spot on the FBI's most wanted list, the connection wasn't immediately made. Police were able to soon track Cunanan to the Normandy Plaza Hotel, only one block away from where he murdered Gianni. He had been staying there since May 12th. Had he been stalking Gianni for two months? Was he trying to memorize his routine so he could pick the perfect time of day to carry out his murderous plans? Who knows? Now that the killing was done and the world is mourning the death of Gianni Versace, it begins to come to light exactly who it was that did this to him. Andrew Cunanan on a months-long killing spree that had taken him thousands of miles across the United States that culminated in the murder of Gianni in beautiful Miami Beach. With this killing, fortunate for the families of the first four victims as well as anyone else that may have 
come to cross paths with Kunyanin, the manhunt intensified. The killing of Gianni brought about a more vigorous investigation. This included more than a thousand agents from various law enforcement agencies across four states. Every single one of them hell-bent on bringing this man's violent streak to an end. He suddenly became the most hunted man in America. His name and face was being splashed in storefronts, across newspaper headlines, and all over television news stations around the globe. The kind of fame and notoriety he had spent his entire life chasing was finally his. For the first time in Kunyan's life, however, he had to lay low. There was not going to be any more going out, no more clubs, no more partying, no more drugs, no more living the life that he pretended his way through for 27 years. Killing Gianni forced him to go underground. He had to stay in hiding, and this was not easy for the outgoing social butterfly he'd always been. Thousands of tips were being called into Crime Stoppers from across the country, hundreds of them from Florida alone. But many of them seemed to be centered on a particular area of Miami where yachts and houseboats are docked, so police began to step up their surveillance in that particular area. Cunanan spent nine days hiding in Miami Beach. Some of that time he spent in a houseboat he broke into. He was finally discovered inside by a caretaker who accidentally stumbled upon him. Authorities, already heavily patrolling the area based on the high volume of tips, were quickly alerted and a police assault team converged on the houseboat. As they did so, they shot tear gas through the windows of the boat, hoping to smoke Cunanan out. But as they did this, and as they were waiting for his surrender, they heard a single shot fired. Cunanan ended his own life with one bullet through the mouth, with the same gun that he had used to kill David, William, and Gianni. Police found him there, laying on the bed, with large amounts of blood coming from his ears, nose, and mouth, and the gun resting in his lap. He was surrounded by squalid conditions, similar to what I imagine he was so disgusted by when he visited his father in the Philippines all those years back. There is a video available online that shows the police videotape of the houseboat where Kunyanin ended his life. You can see the conditions he was hiding in during the last days of his pathetic life, but I also believe you'd be able to see footage of Kunyanin's body. I only watched a small part of it, up to the part where the camera panned over and up towards the top of the staircase. When the video reached the staircase, I clicked out. I really can't watch stuff like that, but if you'd like to take a look, it's out there for the world to see. The end result of a life gone so terribly wrong. One that began with so much promise in the beautiful backdrop of San Diego, California that spiraled into a cross-country killing spree ending in a run-down houseboat in Florida, alone and dead.
a pathetic finale for a pathetic man. There are many questions about Cunanan that have been left unanswered. However, there may be one or two that can be debated. One question I've come across is, was this man a serial killer or a spree killer? Which elements of his crime set him apart from one or the other? It's a topic that's been debated by criminologists and other experts over the years. Some will say Cunanan fits the classic profile of a serial killer, while others insist that anyone calling Cunanan a serial killer is grossly misinformed and contend that he more fits the profile of a spree killer. From what I've read, I'm leaning more towards him being classified as a spree killer as well. The term serial killer describes lifelong sexual deviant psychopaths like Ted Bundy or Jeffrey Dahmer or John Wayne Gacy, all leading relatively normal, often mundane lives, all the while hiding secret acts of unimaginable violence and sadism. Their perverse proclivities began at a young age with behavior such as violence towards animals or juvenile pyromania. And as they got older, they begin to commit more adult crimes. They obsess over a particular victim type, and they are highly repetitive and ritualistic. They also do their best to remain anonymous. None of these elements applied to Kunanin. He tends to best fit into the category of a rampaging spree killer, somebody who just snapped due to some kind of personal crisis and embarks upon a destructive, far-reaching reign of terror, leaving a variety of victims in his wake, sometimes having a grudge against a victim, sometimes other who are unfortunate victims of chance and circumstance. Another nagging question about Cunanan's killing spree. Why did all of this have to happen? There's enough we know about his background to formulate some kind of informed guess. The fact is, Cunanan was deeply disturbed and an embittered man, full of rage and resentment when his life suddenly fell apart. He found himself in this crisis that sent him off the deep end. Life had become an unbearable nightmare for Cunanan. For him, killing himself is only a part of the escape from life. He was determined to go out in a way that he would be remembered by. Scores needed to be settled, but he needed to take others with him, so he would not only be able to wreak vengeance on those he felt wronged him, but also the rest of the world. And what would be better than to be known as the one who murdered Gianni Versace? As we've woven through Cunanan's story, it's easy to see him reach a point where his excruciatingly hollow existence became too much for him to bear. Sigmund Freud once said that there are two requirements for a fulfilling life, love and work. Cunanan, he had neither. Everything in his life was superficial, artificial, and sexually exploitive. In his desperation to prove to the world that he was somebody was his way of overcompensating for the fact that the opposite was true. He was a nobody. After his last benefactor dumped him, 
the realization of his nothingness really set in. At 27, he had nothing, and he was nothing. He had reached the end of his rope, and he snapped. Whether it was a frenzied jealousy or a drug-fueled rage, he lost it, and he murdered Jeffrey. After that, knowing that there was no going back from what he had done, he went on to take four more lives, some for vengeance, others for convenience. Jeffrey Trail, David Madsen, Lee Miglin, William Reese, and Gianni Versace. So many fulfilled, achieved, brilliant, accomplished men, viciously ripped from this world much too soon. So many families devastated, so much potential gone, possibilities lost, life interrupted by a madman who amounted to nothing, nothing in his life and nothing in his death. Thank you so much for joining me again this week for this episode of California Dreaming. Before I sign off, I wanted to let you know about a campaign that I'm taking part in called Two Pods a Day. It aims to introduce podcast listeners to two independent podcasts every day for the month of August. We hope to give visibility to some of the great indie podcasts out there that you probably haven't heard of. Two Pods a Day encourages you to listen more, listen indie. For more shows like mine, follow hashtag Two Pods a Day on Twitter and Facebook. I'd also like you to take a listen to Jeremy, host of podcasts we listen to, tell you about his show. What got you started podcasting? Would you say that your show is safe for work? How would you describe your show to somebody who hasn't heard it yet? If you were trapped on a desert island with one person, one bottle of booze, and one book or movie, how would you fill those slots? Hi, my name's Jeremy, and I'm the host of the podcast We Listen To podcast. If you'd like to hear those questions and many others answered by some of your favorite podcast hosts, come subscribe and give my show a shot. Whether it's history, comedy, spooky ghost stories, audio dramas, or true crime podcasts that you're interested in, find out more about your favorite hosts or find a new favorite show. Either way, come join me as I interview the hosts of the podcasts we listen to. Don't forget to follow California Dreaming on Facebook on the discussion page. Follow me on Twitter at California Pod and also on Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. And that's all for today. So until next time, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.